This morning, uh, we are in a series, our third of four weeks, working our way through the plot line of the Old Testament. And we're calling it Old School. Old Testament School. And uh, before we get in, um, one thing to mention, too, I don't know a lot more details other than I know there will be needs, and you'll probably hear more about those this week. But uh, those of you who know uh, Earl and Sarah, uh, Earl Earl uh, Smith and Sir Kaufman, his daughter Sarah, and she has children, they're home. Uh, their apartment burned down on Friday, I believe it was. And uh, so they're without a place to live. They, they literally lost everything except for some clothes that were in the laundry at a different site. And um, yes, yeah, so we need to be praying for them. And uh, there'll be opportunity to help them. And uh, at this point, it's still early. I don't know what that's going to be. But just a heads up for that. So you'll be hearing about that this week. And let's see if we can rally around them and, uh, and help them out. Sound good? And uh, be praying for them in the meantime. You can imagine that kind of loss and uh, how that would affect them. And even, uh, you know, he's saying, Lord, you never let us down. You ever have times you feel let down by God? Um, the truth of that lyric isn't that uh, there isn't times we feel, not, don't feel let down because there are. But the truth of the matter is that God never is the one letting us down. It's usually our wrong expectations and our wrong trust of his good heart. And uh, so this morning, we're actually going to see that in a group of people in the Old Testament. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, where God's people uh, find themselves wandering in the wilderness for a generation. But before we get there, let me pray. And then uh, we're going to continue to work quickly through the plot line, the storyline of the entire Old Testament. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus and your grace to us through him. I pray now that uh, as we dive into your word, that you would uh, guide me, help me to know, Lord, there's, there's so much content here. Help me to know where to camp out, where to keep moving, and uh, what you would have for us. Teach us today, I pray, uh, that we would uh, look and act more like Jesus when we leave and in the future. And uh, Lord, I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. Uh, would you, Holy Spirit, and come instead come change us, empower me today with your word, and... Um, yeah, teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's review. In the very beginning, God. And God created the heavens and the earth. And he created them in such a way that everything was good. And everything was perfect. And Adam and Eve, in their relationship, in their marriage, had perfect harmony. Nothing was out of place. No misunderstandings. No shame. No sickness. No death. But he gave them one rule to live by, right? He said, don't eat from this one tree in the middle of the garden. And the garden would have been like a national park to us, this huge mass of land. And so uh, instead, they disobey and they eat from the fruit of this tree. And God had told them, as soon as you eat of it, you will surely die. But they ate of it. And they did eventually die, but not immediately. The first thing that happens when God comes to address them before he ever confronts their sin, he promises a fix. See, that's his grace. Before he tells them, go live like this so that they would never think it's because of them that God saves them. He provides a fix right away in Genesis 3.15, the first gospel. He says to the serpent, he says, uh, you will, you will uh, nip at the heel, bite the heel of the offspring of this woman, pointing forward to Jesus, but he will crush your head. 
And the rest of the Old Testament, the rest of Scripture is tracing that promise of how is God going to fix it. So from Genesis 3.15, then God goes to Noah. He, everybody just gets increasingly wicked, and he, he starts over with Noah and his three sons and their wives after the flood. And, and they go, and then the Tower of Babel happens where they don't obey God and fill the earth, but instead they build a, a tower to the greatness of their own name. And so God confuses their languages and divides the nations. And then God decides to start with a family, and he makes a covenant with this man by the name of Abram, which means exalted father. And Abram would later be renamed Abraham, father of a multitude, because God makes a promise with him in Genesis 12. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make uh, your name great. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you a huge family that you'll never be able to count. And uh, I'm going to give you an incredibly great land and bless you throughout your life and your family's life after you. And that promise then eventually is going to reveal itself in Jesus. But it comes from Abraham through Isaac, his son Isaac, through Isaac's son Jacob. And Jacob and his family, Jacob has 12 sons, incredibly dysfunctional family, right? And uh, they try to kill one of them. And instead, they just sell him into slavery. Craziness. And uh, the promise will come through Judah. And, uh, but, but because of the one they sold into slavery, it was Judah's idea actually to sell Joseph into slavery and Joseph goes into slavery in Egypt. And eventually there's a famine and long story short, because of Joseph's, the favor God put on Joseph, he rises to great power in Egypt and he plans for this famine that's coming. And so when the famine hits, uh, Jacob and all of the rest of his sons and their family come to Egypt for food and they're allowed to live there and God is protecting them and caring for them. And 70 of them came, but fast forward 400 years, and now there's a whole multitude of them. God's keeping his promise to Abraham, isn't he? That I'm going to make you into a great family, a great nation, a multitude of people. And uh, this people multiply, but the new Pharaoh didn't remember Joseph because it's 400 years earlier uh, that Joseph was alive. And so he begins to inflict great burdens and oppression on God's people after they multiplied in Egypt. And they, they're under great slavery and great pain. And so they cry out to God for help. And in his mercy, he raises up a man by the name of Moses. And Moses, uh, through God's supernatural power, uh, there's 10 plagues. And the 10th one is the Passover. Uh, the firstborn dies for everyone except for those who've painted the doorpost of their home with the blood of the lamb. And they, they escape from Egypt. And God brings them to the edge of the Red Sea and then parts the Red Sea and they, they leave. They just see God do incredible, incredible things. He's leading them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night in the midst of their camp. Their first pit stop in the desert ends up being uh, Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God gives them commandments because here's what God's doing. Remember his promise back here to Abram? He said, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you into a great multitude and I'm going to give you a great land. Well, when they were in Egypt, they didn't exactly have that land, did they? So when God rescues them with Moses, he's keeping that other part of his promise. He's going to take them back and give them this land. And Moses leads them. And when they stop at Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments, which you can summarize in two commandments, choose, or two choices, choose to sin, choose to suffer, choose to obey, choose blessing. What he's giving them is instructions for how they're supposed to live once they get to this land. It's like a coach giving the game plan before the game. Here's how you're supposed to live. If you choose to sin, guys, you're going to suffer. But if you choose obedience, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to bless your socks off. It'll be awesome. Well, they get up to the edge of the land, and uh, God gives uh, Moses instruction to go spy out the land 
before they head in. And that's actually where we're going to pick it up today. Uh, We covered this last Sunday, but I think it's important for us just to review what exactly is happening. They get to this place called Kadesh or Kadesh Barnea uh, is another term for the place. And when they get there, God tells Moses, hey, Moses, I want you to send in 12 spies, one from every tribe. Go spy out the land before you take it so you know what you're getting into and you know how to conquer it. So he sends in 12 spies. And they're in the land for 40 days. You can read about it in Numbers chapter 13. And while they're in the land, they come back and they give, the, they give a report about it in Numbers chapter 13. And what they, what they tell everyone is that it's an exceedingly great land. The, the fruit is great. Uh, uh, the land is great. It's flowing with milk and honey, but there's a problem. The people are great too. The people are huge. There's giants in the land and the cities are fortified. And yeah, God, maybe he told us to take it, but I'm telling you, there's no earthly way we can take it. God's led us out here to die in the wilderness. I think we need to choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. But two people spoke up. Two of them spoke up. Joshua and Caleb. So 10 of the spies give this bad report, but two of them go, hold on. Wait a second here. Uh, where were you the last six months to a year? Where were you in Egypt when God did all of these great things? Do you remember the plagues? Do you remember that? Do you remember how when we were leaving, we had nothing and he provided us with riches? Like the people were giving us gold to send us out. He gave to us in huge ways. And what about the time when we got to the Red Sea? Do you remember that? And how we thought we were left for dead and God parted the Red Sea. Do you remember Remember that? And do you remember how we got into the wilderness and we stopped and the water was bitter at Mara, but but God provided fresh water for us and he provided manna for us. He provided us food. Do you remember all these things? Come on. And then don't you remember how he gave us the commands of how we should live and how he even showed mercy to us after we screwed up and we built the, the calf of gold, an idol. And now you're telling me after all of this, he brings us right up to the edge of the land and you say, no, I'm not, I don't trust him. He's not powerful enough to overtake those big people and those big cities with their scary swords. Joshua and Caleb are beside themselves. In fact, they tear their clothing and they're like, what is wrong with you people? How can you not trust God when you see his blessing like this? Where have you been? Well, the people don't believe Joshua and Caleb, or God for that matter. They believe the ten with the negative, sorry, grumbling, bad report. And in Numbers chapter 14, if you've got your Bible, you might turn there with me. Here's what they say. Here's what's written. Uh, then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Oh, that we would have just died in the land of Egypt. Oh, 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 would that we died in this wilderness. And they had just, they they totally put on blinders and forgotten to pay attention to everything God had done for them, didn't they? And they say, Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? 
Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, verse 4, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They're compl- see what's happening? They're complaining now against Moses and Aaron. And they're like, okay, forget Moses. Let's just elect somebody new and let's go, let's go back. This is ridiculous. I want the good old days, is what they said. Except the good old days really weren't that good. They were slaves. I mean, how messed up is their heart to want that? But Moses, uh, God is, is furious if you keep reading with their grumbling. And he decides, he tells Moses, you know what, Moses? I'm going to do like I did with Noah. I'm going to wipe them all out. I'm going to start over with you. And Moses, being a good leader that he is, he prays and intercedes for them. And God uh, listens to Moses. He uh, relents, but he still has uh, some judgment he's going to bring on these people. Look at verse 20. Look how God views their complaining. Then the Lord said, I've pardoned according to your word, Moses, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory, as truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and the signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice, none of them shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. God viewed their complaining against their leader as complaint against him. Isn't that curious? That's a good warning for us, isn't it? When God puts levels of authority in our life, whether that's at work, whether that's in the church, that when we complain against and grumble against those leaders, and I know this is a, like, wow, that's a weird thing for you to tell us, Josh. And it's a weird thing for me to preach, right? Since I'm the leader. But God's word seems really clear that when we grumble against our leadership, and we're like, why'd they do it that way? I just don't agree. And no, oh, I just, no, oh, I just, how about a new leader? Who are they really grumbling against in God's view? Him. He's the one who appoints leadership, raises up leaders, pulls them down. And he says, so none of them will enter the land. But look at verse 24. But my servant Caleb... Because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. And you can keep reading about what uh, God lays out. And basically, one of the things that he ends up doing is he says, so um, they're never going to see the land, but instead, there's a picture of the Sinai Desert where they were on the screen. Instead, uh, for every day that the spies were in spying out the good land, you're going to spend a year wandering in the desert in this place. Forty years they would wander. And after 40 years, that generation would die. None of them would see the land. Now, it says, except for Caleb. Do you know how old Caleb is at this point? Turn ahead with me um, to Joshua chapter 14. Turn to Joshua chapter 14. Then we'll come back up, come back, wrap this up, and move forward again in the text. Um, Joshua 14. Look at verse 6. This is after Joshua eventually ends up leading him into the land. We'll get to that here in a moment. 
And now he's dividing up the land. And the people of Judah, the tribe of Judah, came to Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, there's Caleb now. The Lord said, uh, Caleb has a different heart, a different spirit about him, a different attitude. Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. Caleb goes back to this time in Numbers chapter 14, and he says to Joshua, Do you remember what God said about us? Because God also says this not only about Caleb, but about Joshua. They had a different spirit. They had a different attitude. They obeyed him. They trusted him. They were willing and ready to step out in faith. He's, Caleb tells Joshua, he says, You remember what God said about us in Kadesh? Verse 7, I was, look at this, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. I'm 39 years old. So Joshua and Caleb were about my age when this happened. About 40 years old. Now, how many of you are 40 or older? Why don't you just raise your hand? Guess what happens to all of us if we don't listen to Joshua and Caleb? We wander in that desert for 40 years and we die. Isn't that crazy? And this group of people, they didn't believe Joshua and Caleb's account, but instead they believed uh, the naysayers. Instead they believed, oh, that can never happen. Instead they believed, God's not big enough to do that. Instead they believed, God doesn't have the resources to accomplish that. Instead they believed, all the fill in the blank, all the snipers, everybody. And so God says, okay, all of you who trusted them and believed them and have grumbled against me, you will wander for 40 years in the desert. And the reality is, loved ones, is I kind of I wrote this down in our notes just as a reminder to us that complaining, uh, and excuse me, an attitude of grumbling or of discontent or complaint, that was the attitude of the people there, wasn't it? If you read through all of Numbers, they were, they were complaining, they were grumbling. Nothing was ever good enough for them. Is that your heart? Are you a grumbler? Are you a complainer? Guess what? It's going to lead to you living the rest of your life until you repent a life of wilderness living. Of wilderness. Isn't it true that sometimes the people who are most critical are the most miserable as well to be around? Because they're always complaining. It's never good enough because it's never their way. And they're always complaining. They're always grumbling. They're they're in the wilderness and they're toxic. And the reality is that unless we trust the Lord and are willing to step out in faith and obey where he leads, the same thing happens to us. This is a spiritual truth that I don't, I don't believe just disappears after the Old Testament. I think an attitude of grumbling and complaining and discontentment will lead to a lifetime of wilderness living. And it begs the question, uh, where's your heart? And the bigger thing here, even than this, is that living that way um, results in, it affects not just us, our bitterness, our complaint. It doesn't just affect us, it affects everyone else. And it affects the entire generation after us. See, look what happens. Keep reading in Joshua after, after Caleb said it. I was 40 years old. But my brothers who went up with me, they made the heart of the people melt. In other words, they came back with a bad report, verse 8. Yet I, Joshua, Caleb said, I wholly followed the Lord my God. 
And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your feet is trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you've wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, Caleb says, the Lord has kept me alive just as he said. God still kept his promise. Look what he says, though. These 45 years since the time when the Lord spoke the word to Moses. You 40 and over again? Raise your hand. Guess what? The reality is, if if we don't trust the Lord, our sin can affect an entire generation after us, like it did Caleb. And even though he didn't sin, he had to wander for 40 years and wait five more years after conquering the land to finally receive the blessing and finally step out in faith the way God had wanted him to to begin with. See, uh, That wilderness living, it robs us and the next generation of blessing, and it robs the next generation from even the opportunity to step out in faith. Caleb and Joshua and their descendants didn't even get the chance until they were in their 80s. I believe that's one of the most powerful lessons for us to learn in all of the Old Testament. That grumbling and complaining... And discontentment results in wilderness living. And instead, we should choose to be thankful and to trust the Lord and the leaders that he's put over us and to follow. And my question then again for me and for you is where's your heart? Here's the deal. Caleb finished well, we're going to see. Joshua finished well. Will you finish well? Or will you finish being bitter and complaining and discontent and nothing's ever quite right? In the wilderness, bringing everyone around you down with you. It's a sad place to start, isn't it? Like, wow, that's kind of heavy. It's really heavy. But it's the truth of God's word. Well, for 40 years, they do wander. In the desert because they refused to step out in faith in spite of everything God had done to bless them. Let me just say, I don't know if you paid attention in our church over the last year, two years. The blessings God has blessed us with tells me that maybe we ought to pay attention. That maybe there's an opportunity in front of us that if we don't step out in faith and trust the Lord, we could be sentencing ourselves and the generations after us down in the other end to a generation of living in the wilderness. Let's be obedient, amen? So a new generation, though, 40 years later, they finally trust the Lord. And you get to the end of Deuteronomy, and Moses doesn't get to go into the land, but he actually dies in the wilderness. He gets to see the promised land, but he dies at the end of Deuteronomy. And his servant, Joshua, takes over leading. And Joshua... And this new generation, and really it's, there is a new generation, but there's also some who are, Joshua's in his 80s. And he leads them into the promised land across the Jericho. You can read about it in Joshua chapter 1. And God, right away, when they get into the promised land, the land that was promised to Abraham, God gives them all a test right away again to see, are they going, uh, are they, are they going is this generation going to follow Uh, what I lay out for them? Are they going to follow the leaders I've put in charge of them? Because here's what happens. You can read about it in the first six, seven chapters of Joshua. Joshua crosses over and he sees the angel of the Lord, who I believe is Jesus. And uh, 
Jesus gives him commands and Joshua gets the command. And Joshua, if you read it, you, you should read it and tell me if you think I'm out to lunch or not. But as I read it, Joshua is the only one who hears from the Lord in this instance. Back on Mount Sinai, everybody heard God speak the Ten Commandments. When Joshua comes and crosses over and he's leading the people over, he's the only person who hears from God. And he, he, God gives him a battle plan. He says, Joshua, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go. Your first city that you're going to attack right in the middle here is Jericho. And you're going to go up to it to attack it, but uh, you're going to surround it. And Joshua's like, yeah, that makes sense. Because that's how siege warfare happened in those days. That's how you conquered a fortified city. You would surround it, starve it out, and then build a ramp and go up over the wall and get in and conquer it. And you would blow trumpets and you would uh, hurl stones and you would shout and make all kinds of noise and drive the people crazy. And finally, you'd, you'd go in. So here's what you're going to do, Joshua. You're going to go, you're going to march around the city. And Joshua's thinking, okay, yeah, that sounds like the battles I know. And you're going to march around the city, and you're going to put the priests in front. Not the mighty men, the priests. And they're going to blow trumpets as you go around. And you're going to walk around it once, and no one's going to say a word. No shouting, no screaming, total silence. You're going to walk around it other than the trumpets. And then you're not going to camp out there and wait and intimidate them like you would in siege warfare. No, you're going to retreat back toward the Jordan, and you're going to wait there until the next day. And each day, God tells Joshua, here's what you're going to do. For seven days, for six days, excuse me, you're going to go walk around the city one time in silence and then go back. On the seventh day, you're going to go and you're going to walk around the city seven times. And at the end of that seventh time, the trumpets are going to blast again, and the walls are going to fall down. You're not going to have to build a ramp. And everybody's going to go in straight up into the city from where he stands. And then you're going to do battle. Okay, now Joshua comes back and he goes to his generals and his military leaders. And he's like, hey guys, here's what God told me to do. Uh, We're going to march up to the city. They're like, yeah. We're going to march around the city. Yeah. Then we're going to come back. What? And you're going to be silent when we march around, huh? And, uh, well, can I be in front, Josh? One of the mighty men says, Josh says, no, uh, the priests actually are going to be in front. What? They can't fight. Have you seen them? My mom could take them out. Come on. <laughs> Josh was like, no, this is what we're going to do. And we're going to do it for six days. And on the seventh day, we're going to go around seven times. And then wait till you see what God does. Because then we'll blast the trumpets. Then the walls will fall. And then we'll go in. And the generals, I, I don't know. It doesn't, text doesn't say this, but I just have to wonder, what were they thinking? That's so unconventional. And I think it's a test that God's laying out for them. Are they going to trust their leadership? And then the the generals go and tell that same story to all the people. And I wonder, did the people, there had to be somebody who thought, this is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Why would we ever do it this way? That's Who was on that committee? Why would we ever do it this way? And they go and they obey. And sure enough, just like God promises, it happens. Now, at that moment, the Lord told Joshua, uh, he told him, he said, listen, as you go in, he told the people. um, So they trusted their leadership, which was good. But God said, when you go in, devote everything to destruction. And there's certain things that are only for me. And if anybody takes of it, uh, it's going to be bad news for the camp. Remember, remember the command of how they're supposed to live in the land? Choose to sin, choose to suffer, choose to obey, choose blessing. Well, one guy, Achan, chooses to sin. 
And it throws the whole camp into chaos because at their next battle at Ai, a tiny little town, they get routed. And his sin is found out. And um, they deal with his sin. And moving forward, that's the pattern. When they choose to obey, it's good. When they choose to disobey, they suffer. But Joshua leads them in. They pass this test and they divide and conquer the land. And after dividing and conquering it, um, there's, I know there's much we're, we're skipping over here, but I'm going to give you just a high storyline. They divide and conquer it, and then Joshua divides up the land for each of the 12 tribes. That's where we saw Caleb, right? And Caleb, a guy who's finishing well. Turn to your neighbor and say, finish well. Now turn to your other neighbor and tell them, finish well. Now yell it at me, finish well. Amen? Caleb finished well, and it went well for him. And Joshua, you know, Joshua is one of the only guys in the Bible that there's nothing negative written about. Isn't that crazy? Other than Jesus, obviously, right? There's nothing talked about of Joshua's sin. He, I'm sure he did. He's still sinful, but amazingly, God used him, and he obeyed. And he gives uh, this, this big speech at the end of his life, and he tells everybody, hey, here's the deal. God brought us in here. You saw it. Many of you, you wandered with me for 40 years in the wilderness until we got here because of the previous generation. So now going forward, you need to make a choice. Chapter 24 of Joshua. You need to choose today whom you're going to serve. And you need to choose if it's evil in your sight to obey God and to step out in faith and to follow him, then choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me, Joshua says, in my house, we will serve the Lord choose. It's a choice. That attitude is, isn't it? And so uh, for a generation after Joshua, then uh, there's, uh, there's great blessing. The people obey. Uh, But then as you read in the book of Judges, it says after the time of Joshua, for a generation, they believed, but then a generation arose after them who did not remember all the things the Lord had done for them. Like the way he had read, led them across the Red Sea. So it lasts for a generation. And God had given them a command. He said, go into the land, and I want you to totally obliterate everyone who lives there so that you're never tempted to sin and worship their gods. Yet what happens is you start reading the book of Judges, a generation after Joshua. Um, And you read in chapter 1, verse 29 and following, And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites, so the Canaanites lived there among them. Zebulun, verse 30, but he didn't drive out all the inhabitants of Ketron. The tribe of Asher, they didn't drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or of Sidon, or Aleb, or Akzib, or of Helba. they, They didn't fully obey. And then Jesus brings judgment. He shows up, the angel of the Lord, in chapter 2 in the book of Judges. And uh, he said, I brought you out from Egypt and I swore you into the land and I brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers, excuse me. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall break no covenant with the inhabitants, make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become thorns in your sides as their gods shall be a snare to you. And uh, the people don't get driven out. God leaves them in the land. And after uh, 
wandering in the wilderness because of disobedience, and then obedience where God gives them the land. Now they're in the land and they disobey again. So if they chose to disobey, they chose to sin, what are they choosing? To suffer. And that's exactly what we're going to see happen throughout the book of Judges. And now we enter, we see more sin, and in the storyline of God keeping that promise from Genesis 3.15 to provide a fix, um, Joshua's not going to provide it. And now there's this cycle of sin in the book of Judges. And here's how this cycle works. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. But in the storyline, basically what would happen is Israel would turn away from God to idols. And then after they turned away from God to idols, God would send in a foreign oppressor and a king and his people, and they would come and conquer them. And then the people of Israel would be in oppression for a generation sometimes. Sometimes as little as a few years, sometimes decades. And they would cry out to God in their oppression, and God would raise up a judge or a leader over them uh, to both judge their sin and then to deliver them. And then God would return blessing to the people. And they would obey for the entire time that that judge lived. But as soon as he died, or she died in the case of Deborah, the cycle would repeat. That's the book of Judges. In fact, uh, let's just look at one of them. Uh, in Judges chapter 3, the first judge we're introduced to is Othniel. Here, see if it follows this pattern. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the, God, their, the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Therefore, the anger of, anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Cushan Rishlam king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rith. I don't know how to say that. Rishathim, eight years. It's a tough name. But when the people of Israel cried out to God, to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. And he went out to war and the Lord uh, gave the king of Mesopotamia into his hand and his hand prevailed over him. So the land had rest for 40 years. See, the whole cycle's completed, and then Othniel died. And now the cycle's going to repeat. Verse 12, And the people of Israel again did was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against the people. And the cycle just repeats. And every time the cycle repeats, it gets worse and worse because the people sin more and more. To the point that at the end of the book of Judges, it says that there was no king in Israel. All these other kings had conquered Israel, but there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It seems to be presented as the height of sin to just do whatever you want. The reality, there was a king in Israel. The king was the Lord. He was their king. But they refused to obey him. So he let them be oppressed by foreign kings. And then he raised up a judge to deliver them. And that cycle goes down and down and down. And finally, at the end of Judges, you've got a people with no king who are utterly sinful. And you've got to be thinking, okay, I, I, I heard this promise in Genesis 3.15 that God's going to fix it. But it seems like we, we make a little progress in the story. And then uh, this, this great sin happens. And we've really made no progress towards God fixing anything. Well, now let's try it with a kingdom. So the people say, they, they go to Samuel later in, in 1 Samuel, and they're like, hey, Samuel, we want a king. 
All these other nations that have been kicking our butts, they have kings. We need a king. Samuel does not take this well because he knows that really the Lord God is their king. And God says, you know what, Samuel, it's okay. Just give them what they want. Give them what they want. And uh, God gives them a king. So Samuel anoints a guy by the name of Saul as king. And that uh, you can read about this in, in 1 Samuel chapter 9. Why don't you turn with me there to 1 Samuel chapter 9 if you've got your Bible. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeor, son of all these other guys. Verse 2, and he had a son whose name was Saul. Listen to, listen to Saul. And Saul was a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. You ever see Beauty and the Beast? You know the song about Gaston? If you have kids or maybe if you just like those movies. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Or am I the only one? And it's like, no one's slick as Gaston. No one's quick as Gaston. No one's neck is incredibly thick as Gaston. And he goes on and just describes like how awesome he is. And that's Saul. Saul's like the best looking guy in town. He's head and shoulders above everyone else. There's no one in town half as manly as Saul. He's Gaston. And Saul, uh, the problem with Saul, Saul starts off really well, but he was a king like the people wanted. He was a king who looked the part in every way. And God gave them what they wanted. And when adversity hits Saul, Saul goes a little crazy. And has some major mental and spiritual issues going on in his mind and in his heart. And Saul, while he started well, in the end we find out he had no heart for God. And his life ends um, not unlike the people in the wilderness. He gets to the point of utter desolation. He actually uh, falls on his sword and kills himself at the end of 1 Samuel. He just he goes crazy. Well, Saul, too, just didn't obey. That was part of where it started for him, is he quit obeying the Lord. And uh, when a battle comes up, he, he doesn't go out. And in well, long story short, here's what happens. God turns his, his heart and his blessing away from Saul, and he tells Samuel, Samuel, I'm, I'm done with Saul. I'm done uh, with his nonsense. I'm done with his sin. Uh, it's, I've got to keep my promise. It's time for a king who's after my own heart. It's time for a king with a whole heart. And he chooses a man by the name of David. And you can read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And so uh, Samuel goes and he goes to the house of a man by the name of Jesse. And he asks Jesse to bring forth um, all of his sons. And he brings them forth. And when they came, verse 6 of chapter 16 in 1 Samuel, uh, Samuel looked upon Eliab and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Surely this is the guy. He looks the part. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his outward appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees. He looks on the, who look, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then Samuel went through each of Jesse's sons, and finally the Lord said, he's not here. And Samuel asked Jesse, he's like, okay, do you have any other sons? He's like, yeah, but he's really young, and he's out in the field. He's a shepherd boy. Go get him. We're not sitting down until he gets back. And they go get him. They bring him back, and God says, this is the one. Anoint him. He's a man after my heart. And God chooses David as king. So from no heart, Saul, to whole heart with David. 
And and Saul's reign isn't even over yet when David becomes king. And uh, David, in chapter 17, in the very next chapter, Saul uh, is kind of stalling at battle. And the Philistines have this big guy by the name of Goliath who comes out. And uh, instead, David shows up with box lunches for his brothers in the army. And uh, he hears Goliath uh, complaining against his God. And he's like, who? What? What did he say? Why don't you guys do something about that? How do you let him speak like that? They're like, well, there's nobody willing to go fight him. The guy's huge, David. I'll take him. Let me at him. I can take him. And David, shepherd boy, teenager, goes to Saul, tallest king by a, a head over every tallest guy by a head over everybody else in the nation who should have been out fighting, and says, Hey Saul, I'll take him. I can do this. He's like, Come on, you're a boy. He's like, No, 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 I will. I, I, I killed lions with my bare hands. I've got, I can take him. So he puts his armor on him. It's way too big for David. And David takes it off and he goes out with his sling. He picks up five smooth stones from this dry riverbed in the area in the Valley of Elah. And he goes out and plunk right in the middle of Goliath's forehead, falls down. Cut, David goes and cuts his head off. They skipped that on the flannel graph when you were in a little kid, right? They go over, David goes over, cuts his head off, and is carrying him around. He's like, yes, for for God and for Israel. And then Israel comes charging down and just sacks the Philistines. And uh, when they come back, uh, the women are singing, oh, Saul is such a great king. He's killed his thousands. Saul's like, yeah, that's awesome. But David, David is tens of thousands. And now Saul's insecurity boils up and... Eventually he kills himself. David becomes king. God makes a covenant with David uh, that he's going to let his kingdom, his throne, rule forever, reign forever. There'll always be somebody on his throne pointing forward to the fix from Genesis 3.15 to Jesus. Uh, David wants to build a temple for the Lord, but God says, "Uh, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to make your descendants great. Somebody always on your throne. But your son, after you, he'll be build, your, build my temple. And so Solomon comes after him, and, uh, and Solomon builds the temple. And Solomon, while Saul had no heart, David had a whole heart. Solomon's heart was a half heart. And in some ways, he served the Lord and was incredibly faithful, and he was incredibly wise. He's wiser than anyone who's ever lived other than Jesus. He asked the Lord for wisdom, and he gave it to him. Uh, but his wisdom failed when uh, Solomon's eyes were turned Uh, to foreign women. And in 1 Kings chapter 9, we read this about Solomon. Sorry, I think I just said Saul, not Solomon. As soon as Solomon had finished the building of the house of the Lord, uh, 1 Kings 9, is it 11? 11, thank you. Uh, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidian, and Hittite women from all the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Well, Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. Another reminder to finish well. Solomon started off really well, but he didn't finish well. How will you finish? How will I finish? For Solomon went after all these gods. He actually, uh, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He even built 
built high places to these false gods. And so because of Solomon's divided heart, remember God had told them, choose to sin, choose to suffer. Because of Solomon's sin, they're all going to suffer. And that kingdom that was great, it was, Israel was more powerful and larger than any other time in history under the reign of Solomon. But because of Solomon's sin, it gets divided. And 10 tribes go to the north. And over the course of uh, about 200 years, they have 19 kings and every one of them is wicked. And so in 722 BC, God brings judgment on them and the Assyrians come in and they pluck them out of the land, destroy all their cities and they're taken captivity. Well, the southern two tribes become the nation of Judah at this time when it splits. And Judah, uh, two tribes, uh, Judah had 19 kings and one queen and most of them were evil as well, but eight of them were actually somewhat good. And I believe because there were some who sought the Lord, who chose to obey, God blessed them. And uh, they endured for another 140 years longer than uh, the northern tribes. So in 586 BC, they, though, too, get conquered by Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. And he comes in and sacks Israel and takes them all out of the land. And this is where we're going to stop today, where... uh, We started with a group of people who refused to step out in faith and trust God for the blessing he wanted to give them. The next generation finally did. Joshua leads them in. But then only a generation later, um, there was almost 400 years of this cycle of sin and of judges. And so then God gives them a king and Saul who had no heart. And then in David with a whole heart. And then Solomon, his half heart, ends up dividing the kingdom. And because of the people's sin, they chose to suffer and God plucks them right back out of the land that he had given to them. And we start with them in exile, wandering in the desert, and we end today with them again in exile because of their sin. And God had plucked them out because of their sin. They chose to sin. They chose to suffer. And I think it's a good reminder for us because it happens over and over in the Old Testament for us to examine our own hearts and find out, um, are we willing as individuals and as a church to trust the Lord, to step out in faith and follow him, to look at all the ways he's blessed us and say, you know what? We can trust him for even greater things in the future if we put one foot in front of the other and follow Or will we uh, choose to disobey and choose to wander in the desert for a generation? And it'll be the kids down the hall who get the great blessing when they're our age. Let's obey, not find ourselves in exile. Yeah, yeah? Well, next week we'll finish the story of the Old Testament and it ends with us waiting for Jesus to come back. And then in October, we'll be in a series through... uh, October is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, so we're going to have a theological study for the month on the five, you'll hear about it, the solas of Scripture, but it all starts off with Jesus. So really, in a lot of ways, we're going to end this whole series uh, right where it's pointed at Jesus. So let me pray. Uh, Then we're going to take our offering and take communion together, and we'll call it a morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus and your grace to us through him. Lord, um, so much content to cover this morning, and uh, but, but there seems to be a theme as we study it that 
pretty simply, as, as your people obeyed you, you blessed them. As they stepped out in faith and followed you, trusting your goodness in the past for more in the future, uh, you were faithful and, and you gave them more. But when they chose to sin and they looked upon themselves and the weakness of themselves, not on the power of you, Lord, they ended up suffering and they sinned and they turned after other gods and they developed attitudes of complaint and grumbling and discontentment. And Lord, you would rather have us anywhere, even living in the wilderness, than living in that type of sinful attitude. And so you bring discipline on us. So Lord, I pray for each one here, if there's any of us, if we've been living that life of discontent and of grumbling and of complaint or of bitterness toward you or someone else. Holy Spirit, would you uh, cause us to repent today and turn back to you? Because you promise as we do, you forgive us, you make us new, and you restore your blessing to us. Help us be a people, Lord, in this church, in this community, who are known for following you, for stepping out in faith, and then for you doing great things, that your name, Jesus, would be great. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.